Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. Today we're going to start off talking about bikepacking bikes and specifically try to answer the question of which bike we might recommend for someone who's getting into bikepacking. Greg mentioned that he had a friend who was asking this question and we thought it'd be a good topic, especially since we just published Greg's review of the Salsa Cutthroat. So a bikepacking bike, if it's made for bikepacking, it's usually a good choice, um, in my opinion, because there are just a lot of great bikes out there. But what are the different use cases for bikepacking bikes? Yeah, I think there's, you know, it depends how you approach bikepacking. Like the Tour Divide, for instance, is mostly um, dirt road, gravel binding, and that's a really big uh, portion of bikepacking really is those sorts of rides. But with trails like the Arizona Trail Race and the Colorado Trail, you know, we're talking single track trails with like tons of climbing, technical descending. So those are two very different things. And then you even have some people even on the more extreme end who are traveling where there isn't necessarily a designated trail, such as along the coast in Alaska or on similar environments. For each of those situations, you know, a different bike is better than another. So yeah, when thinking about all those different use cases, there's everything from off-road touring where you're going to want like a 29er uh, with, you know, maybe a skinnier tire so you can really roll fast and efficiently, all the way up to those overland expeditions where something like a, a fat bike is going to work well so you can roll through sand, basically make your own trail ride through frozen rivers and lakes and that sort of thing. So there's definitely a wide spectrum of bikepacking bikes out there. So what in particular should riders look for in a bikepacking rig? I think there are a couple of key items to look for. I think one is a lot of mounting points. So we see this with a lot of bikepacking rigs where there's a lot of bosses built right into the frame for water bottles, different rack systems, bosses on the fork. So those make it a lot easier to get your setup going right off the bat. Uh, and a second thing is a lot of room for bags. And this is especially critical with if you're trying to take a full suspension bike and go bikepacking with it. So having a lot of room in your main triangle to put a large frame bag is critical. I kind of had three points on the what riders should look for. One being versatility, going back to what Greg said, lots of mounts for racks and cages and lights, etc. Durability. You know, you want a you want a bike that's going to be able to handle the rigors of trail riding and also be able to do that while it's loaded down. And then simplicity. I know Greg mentioned a full suspension bike for bike packing. You don't see many of those, at least many dedicated full suspension bike packing rigs. Hardtails are going to give you the most space in the frame for a bag. But hardtails and rigid bikes, they also have less moving parts when you compare it with a, a full suspension. So that means there's less to go wrong out on the trail. So just going back to the point of simplicity, you know, another thing is maybe opting for mechanical disc brakes instead of hydraulic disc brakes. It's easier to maintain, especially if you're on a, on a really long tour, you know, something where you're 
crossing a state or a country even. Well, yeah, Greg, you test rode a couple of bikepacking rigs recently. And the most recent one that, that we posted uh, was a review of the Salsa Cutthroat. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Cutthroat and some of the other bikepacking bikes that you've ridden? Yeah, the Cutthroat was just a super fun bike. But when we talk about the different use cases, it's definitely intended for the the back road, like dirt road touring, more so than single track riding. So the Cutthroat and its stock setup is a fully rigid carbon 29er which runs pretty narrow stock tires at 2.1 inches with a drop bar setup and a cyclocross drivetrain. So, you know, it's very different from what you would consider for most mountain bikes. But I tested it actually on single track, and even with the drop bar setup, had a fantastic time. You can read more about that on the website. So that's definitely geared towards the go-fast over not-super-technical-terrain style of biking. Whereas I also got on the Rocky Mountain Sherpa, uh, which we had a rider review in April, but I wanted just to ride it for myself. And that's a full suspension, bikepacking specific bike, and with 27.5 plus wheels and tires. So it rode totally different from the Cutthroat. The Rocky Mountain Sherpa, you could ride that as your daily rider on most single track without a bike bake setup. But the way it's built, the shock takes up almost no room in the main triangle. So there's tons of room for a frame bag. So it was me. I would take like the Rocky Mountain Sherpa on the Colorado Trail. If I was bikepacking the Colorado Trail. If I was doing the Tour Divide, maybe the Salsa Cutthroat. So it's interesting to see different companies shooting for a different use case scenario within bikepacking itself. Yeah, that is interesting. So I test rode the... Surly ECR out at Interbike a few weeks ago, and it's kind of in the middle of the two bikes that you talked about, Greg. It's got a Jones loop bar, which is not a handlebar that you're going to see on a mountain bike or a road bike. It's kind of a hybrid of the two. Uh, It kind of sweeps back and allows you to get a different hand position on the bar. And it's a 29 plus rig, so It's designed to definitely roll fast and efficiently, but it's also got plenty of cushion on it. This bike, you know, it has friction shifters. It's very durable and seems to be built to be, you know, super field serviceable if you need it to be. Comes with a rigid fork, but you can also run a suspension fork on it. What's interesting is that certainly while they say you can do it, they really don't recommend it just because you're kind of limiting the tires that you can put on the bike. And and also, I imagine part of it is that by adding suspension, you're adding something else that can go wrong in the field, which is, is kind of an interesting thought. Given these bikepacking bikes that we've been talking about and also some of the things people should look for, what is the pricing like for bikepacking rigs? Is this going to be something that's really expensive for people to get it into? Or is it something that they can start doing you know, with, with whatever they already have? In terms of dedicated bikepacking rigs, there's a, a big continuum of prices, obviously. Salsa has a wide range of different bikes from the cutthroat on the higher end, which is the full carbon, uh, you know, essentially a, a race bikepacking bike. That's a $4,000 bike, but at the lower end, the Salsa Fargo, that's a rigid steel drop bar bike, and that's a $1,700 bike complete. So... It's not wildly expensive, but if it's if it's something you're not sure you really want to get into, I mean, you can use any bike that you have currently for bikepacking. 
Uh, one of our contributors, Alec, wrote an article earlier this year called Run What You Brung about bikepacking on a 1978 Schwinn road bike. He took that on an overnight trip riding gravel and single tracks. So you really can use whatever you have at your disposal. You don't necessarily need custom bags and everything right off the bat. So if, if it's something you're interested in trying, I'd say use whatever gear you have currently, whatever bike, whatever bags you have already on hand and before you, you know, dive in and buy a dedicated bikepacking rig. Yeah, as you were talking about that, I had another question in mind that I don't know if we covered when we were talking about what to look for in a bikepacking rig, but do you need a gearing system that's specifically set up for bikepacking? I mean, is 1x11 going to be enough Mm. or do people need a couple of extra gears uh, when their bike's going to be fully loaded down? I mean, it really depends on the rider. (laughs) So, I mean, some guys race the Tour Divide on a single speed, so it depends on, you know, ultimately what you want to do. I've talked to several guys that are into endurance racing and bikepacking around here, and they like to run a triple chainring. So very few bikes come stock with it triple chainring anymore, but no guy here who, you know, if he can't put a triple on a bike, he's not going to buy it just because it won't give him the gear range he needs to climb these steep mountain passes at a slow speed after having ridden over 100 miles that day. Hmm. On the flip side, I know plenty of bike packers that run 1x11 drivetrain, so it really depends on the person. And, you know, especially I think it's especially interesting when you start seeing more and more bikes that come stock with a one by drivetrain, but they don't even offer a front derailleur mounting option. One instance of that is the new Yeti SB4.5C, which was marketed sort of as like a go-fast, like, race bike, adventure bike, Yeti, especially with their Proven Here series, really talks about going into the backcountry. But you, you're you stuck with a one-by drivetrain on that bike. There's no way to put a dera- front derailleur on it. We're starting to see more and more limitation from certain manufacturers in that respect. Hmm. Well, I don't think that's a dedicated bikepacking. I mean, if you're really looking to do bikepacking, I don't think the Yeti would be your first choice anyway. Well, I agree with that. But so let's say you're looking to get into bikepacking down the road. So what bike you buy could sort of dictate what you end up doing with it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, back in the day, you used to be able to put just about any parts on any bike that you wanted to. For instance, um, like Jeff's Hardtail 29er, he runs a one by drivetrain, but that didn't come stock on it, you know. came stock with like a lot of gears. But now with some of the bikes and the way they're designed, we're having fewer and fewer options of what we can put on those aftermarket, you know, if we change our mind. You know, like let's say you buy the SB 4.5C and then a year from now you're like, oh, I want to get into bike packing. You could probably bike pack on that bike and do a setup on there. wouldn't be ideal, but you could probably make it happen, but you won't be able to put a three-ring, you know, crank set on there. So, I don't know. Right. Just interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, I assume if you do ride a 1x11 for your daily ride and you feel strong and you do well on that, once you start throwing packs on there and start, you know, really hitting the backcountry, I think there's definitely the potential need for a few more gears no matter where you are. So maybe if you ride single speed normally, you're going to want to go 1x11. If you're riding 1x11, you might need to go to something uh, with a few more gears. So it's interesting that it'll, it'll really depend on the rider, like you said. Right. Well, the first bikepacking trip I ever did, it was back in 2008, and I did that on a five-inch travel full suspension, and I used a, a backpack and a 
seat post rack and we did a three-day tour and had a great time and we had no idea what we were doing at all but you use enough bungee cords and you can make (laughs) anything happen there's a great bikepacking 101 article if you go to bikepacking.com they've got a ton of suggestions for ways to get into it on the on the cheap with the gear i can definitely see where a triple would would be advantageous especially out in colorado but with with a one by 11 setup you can also get a really tiny front chain ring so that's something to consider as well i know our our friend donald here in atlanta does a lot of bike packing on a one by 11 setup and i think now with SRAM's direct mount chain rings, you can go all the way down to a 26 tooth chain ring in the front and you're going to lose a lot of top end on the road. But if that's not your main concern, if your tour is going to consist mostly of single track and lots of climbing, you know, 26 in the front and a 42 out back, that's a pretty low gear. Yeah, that's a good point. You can just swap out the front chain ring if your 1x11 is a little too stout for your bikepacking setup. Now we're going to try a new segment called Grinding Your Gears and Stoking Your Spokes. And this comes to us via our friend Christopher Rampton, who had this idea. But basically, we're going to talk about things that are, that are bothering us right now or getting us really excited about mountain biking. So I'm going to let Aaron start it off. All right. Well, I'll tell you what's grinding my gears right now is uh, broken bike parts. I tend to go long periods of time without breaking stuff. And then I'll just have a pile of bad luck in a very short time. And I'm in one of those periods where I'm breaking a lot of things. So I've had several flats recently. I broke a rear derailleur on a brand new bike on the second ride. And then not mountain biking, but still broken, I uh, ended up breaking the fork on my road bike. So I'm hoping to get through this little spell of bad luck and, and, you know, hopefully this will be my one period this year where I'm breaking things left and right so that's what's grinding my gears (laughs) i guess on the stoking my spokes side of things it's i'm just really excited about the fall riding you know it's my favorite time to get out and ride it's finally starting to cool off here in georgia we had a really brutally hot summer but i know most of the people in the southeast did as well so all you guys are probably excited to see the the uh, thermometer below 80 degrees for a change you know the trails are in in great shape at least until all the leaves fall and it's also a good time to get out and do some trail maintenance and start scouting for some new lines to build this winter too. So that's what's stoking my spokes. Awesome. What about you, Greg? Is the weather stoking your spokes or is it grinding your gears? Honestly, the snow is both grinding my gears and stoking my spokes. You know, out here in Colorado, we are plunging into winter headlong. Uh, we've got tons of snow in the high country and more on the way. We went from summer to winter really quickly this year it seems like so i'm a little frustrated that the high alpine above tree line riding is done for about another eight months but on the flip side i'm also stoked for something new coming down the pipe so i'm just thinking more about fat biking this year and, and i'm trying to plan some fat biking specific adventures i'm working on getting my fat bike set up dialed in and hopefully get a few key pieces of gear that will make it much more comfortable and easier to fat bike than it has in the past. So really, I think more than ever, I'm really excited about fat biking season and just trying to make the most of it while it's here. Right on. That's fun. So I was camping this last weekend up at Tennessee Trail System in Tennessee. And I guess one of the things that's grinding my gears, but maybe 
stoke in my spokes or I got that backwards is stoke in my spokes but grinding my gears is you know there really weren't a lot of people up there it was great weather this weekend beautiful fall colors and we had the campground almost to ourselves you know it was one of those weekends when you would expect it to be full of bikers and people on the trail but we didn't see a lot of people on the trail and the only thing that I can think is maybe people are, are spending more time riding close to home. You know, there's so many great flow trails and things being built close to where people live in the suburbs. And, you know, maybe people are just starting to spend less time in the national forest, which, you know, if you're someone who enjoys riding in the national forest, then that should definitely stoke your spokes because there are less people on the trail. But, you know, it's kind of sad in that, you know, the spirit of mountain biking, at least to me anyway, is always involved you know, these big rides out in the woods, getting away from things. And, and maybe we're starting to get away from that by building trails close to where people live. Not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, it's just a different thing. But it is football season too, so maybe that's part of it. That's lots of, true. Lots of that's true. SEC people were, people were listening to it in the campground, though. They had it on their, their <laughs> car radio, you know, and so we all got to listen to the Tennessee game. And yeah, there's ways around that. For sure. But that's a good point. You know, there are lots of trail systems popping up. You know, you look at the metro area, metro Atlanta area, and pretty much half an hour, any direction you go, you can hit a trail system. You know, you've got Blankets Creek and Chicopee and Harbins and Conyers. And I mean, they're big creek. They're all over the place. And it is awesome to have these these smaller trail systems near population centers. But I'm, I'm definitely like you, Jeff. I prefer to get out there where you really feel like you're out in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, to be honest though, it's not like I personally get out there that much either having kids and things. It is convenient having trails close to home, but maybe we're going to start seeing people just preferring those trails. A friend of mine, you know, we do this Tuesday night ride in town here in Atlanta every week. And a friend of mine was saying more and more, he just prefers riding in town. You know, this is a guy who goes bikepacking and rides all over the place, can ride for hundreds of miles at a time. And for him, he is fine with just riding around Atlanta. You know, the quality of trails in town is enough to keep it interesting. And, you know, there's always stuff to explore. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe we're seeing a shift in that direction. I think we definitely are. And, you know, speaking just from what I'm observing out here is that the main thrust of mountain bike trail building in our region and in most regions I've observed is building trails that are close to town, like easily accessible trails. Now, I don't really see the trail system out in the national forest growing at all. And since those trails aren't growing, new trails aren't being added out there, you know, the advances in trail design and trail building technique are all happening in those easily accessible trails. So we're building trails closer to town and the trails that we're building closer to town are better constructed than the trails that we've had out in the national forest. And so now I think sort of we're seeing like the best trails become the close to town ones as far as like your ride quality. You know, you're not going to get that middle of nowhere feel and you're not going to maybe get on top of like a 14,000 foot mountain, but they sure ride, you know, really well and they're easy to get to. Right. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and getting those trails built is probably a lot easier too in terms of getting permissions and negotiating all that stuff. Right, a lot, a lot less red tape. You know, logistically speaking, those in-town trails are are easier to get to. You know, I know mm. that we all know that's a big, a big part of mountain biking, especially when you're getting into 
into the backcountry, you know, like some of the rides that we had with you out in Salida, Greg, you know, there was a lot of vehicle logistics and how many cars mm-hmm. do we need and where are we parking and how are we getting back up here with, you know, doing shuttle rides. So it's, that's a lot of stuff to consider and it's a lot to take on week in, week out. So if you can mm-hmm. either spend an entire Saturday, you know, spend eight hours to ride 25 miles or you can ride 25 miles at your local trail system and do it in half the time. It's a pretty intriguing proposition. Indeed. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting on that is, you know, talking with some of like the local trail villagers, you know, they plan some of their, most of their trail days. So it's easy for the volunteers to get there, you know, and walk in and be at the dig site really quickly. Whereas for a lot of these backcountry trails, the organizations that work on them, generally you're committing almost an entire weekend to building trail out in the backcountry because you generally have to backpack in with your gear, spend the night the night before, get up, work the whole next day, you know, because you can't just walk in 15 minutes to get to your dig site. Yeah, just a lot of logistics. Mm. Well, awesome, guys. Thanks for joining me again on the podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode when we're going to be talking about plus-size wheels and tires. Peace. Later.